This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, we're broadcasting live from the studios here in Beaufort, South Carolina. You may be in Georgia or up towards Charleston, but this for the next hour is an opportunity for you to ask questions. You have several ways in which to present your questions to us. You can call live, as Rick just mentioned, at 843-525-1859, the 843-South Carolina Exchange is 525 525- 1859. If you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it that way. Tons of questions come in via email. We can't almost answer all of them. If I tried to answer them all, I would spend my whole week answering questions, uh, but we try to answer as many as we can, and sometimes uh, it will take us a couple months to get to your question. But you can email your question directly here into the studio today at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net, and we're happy to receive it that way as well. So a lot of questions have already come in, Rick, and uh, let's go ahead and we'll get started, and by God's grace, we'll take them one at a time. All right, Pastor, this is a question that's very timely right now. Jacob writes, I'm in need of some counsel regarding a situation in my local church. Our church is a Southern Baptist Convention, and it's the best church we've been able to find in our city, but there are many things that are deeply troubling my wife and I. This past week, an email was sent out to the congregation from the senior pastor stating that an urgent business matter needed attention. We were given very short notice to pray and respond with an online vote. The issue at hand was the senior pastor and the finance personnel committees want to apply for a loan under the CARES Act, the Payroll Protection Plan, through the Small Business Administration. Not much information was given or explained, explained, except that it would be a blessing to our church, and if we follow all the terms, the loan would be completely forgiven. The loan amount is quite large. We were very disturbed by this. Our church is in debt, but our deficit for the year isn't any worse than other times. We were told giving hasn't really gone down since we began a live streaming last month. By, by God's grace, my wife and I have actually increased our giving. A couple of things have bothered me in regards to this supposed forgivable loan. Is it biblical for a church to take money from the government? Our government is broke and spends more money than can even try bringing in to offset the debt. Who's going to pay for this? I believe there is a principle in Scripture that the local church should be supported by believers and giving is an act of worship to the Lord. I believe relying on God's Word, praying, fasting, and giving should be our focus during this time and trusting God for the future. I don't believe that this loan is going to be completely forgiven and will end up causing more harm than good. We also received an email from our pastor letting us know personally that the church overwhelmingly passed it and he wanted to know why we voted no. If you could offer any advice or help, We would be very thankful. Well, it's an interesting, interesting question. 
a week or so ago, I was in a meeting with the Alliance Defense Fund. I was invited to be a part of it and to listen to some of their attorneys go back and forth, and they brought in different people. I, I think their motivation, as much as anything, was just to expose uh, pastors to the resources that they make available. And, and believe me, this is a great organization. I'm not critical of it. Uh, they have done so much for the body of Christ to defend our, you know, f- principles of freedom of worship and expression and and many of those right now are being challenged under this COVID virus. Um, but the people that they had speaking, they basically had some pastors and Christian leaders from different organizations who were all over the map. They couldn't even decide whether you should take this money or not. And, and basically, if you're not familiar with the whole um, bill uh, it essentially says that if an organization has less than, you know, 500 people, therefore they'd be considered a, a small business, that they can request an amount equal to two and a half times the average monthly payroll. And if you um, use this money, if it's spent on payroll and rent and, uh, you know, those kinds of things that are involved with the running of a business, that the government is going to forgive your loan. So, you know, um, that's very attractive, and it's very attractive to, unfortunately, some churches who who need to really think this through. You're, you're right. Our government is bankrupting itself. We can't just keep borrowing money and borrowing money and borrowing money. Uh, they just said three days ago, you know, they keep lowering. They used to say when uh, George W. was in office, said Social Security would you know, run out at, you know, 2048 and they just dropped it another two years, uh, three days ago from 2033 to 2031. That's in 11 years. So, so security is going to be broke. They keep dropping it. And, um, why? Because we're, we're spending all this money. We don't have it. It's very easy to spend someone else's money. And so just in pure, in terms of pure stewardship, the government is trying to fix a problem due to the mismanagement and the mishandling of money. They have broken principle after principle after principle. And when a nation forsakes God and they forsake God's ways, then they are going to adopt many lines of procedure that are unbiblical. And so the government is desperate. And so they're just, you know, printing more money and running the presses and bringing our country deeper and deeper into debt. And we will reach a point where you be able to take your $100 bills and you can use them for wallpaper because that's about what they're going to be worth. Um, But the question you ask is, should a Christian be engaged in this? And this is where it's really essential for a a local church. And, And understand the average church in America is about, you know, 75 people. But still, you need to be wise stewards of what God has given you. Certainly, all debt is not forbidden. If all debt were forbidden, then God's principles to Israel would be false, and God can only speak the truth. He said to Israel in Deuteronomy 29 that if you would obey me and keep my principles, I'll make you the lender rather than the borrower. Well, God said he would bless them by making them the lender, which would tell you right off that all debt is not necessarily sin. Uh, For God to make them and bless them by being the lender rather than the borrower. 
With that said, debt is discharged in Israel every seven years. The debts were basically re- released and gone and zeroed out. And so it caused you to be very careful when you borrowed money or you lent money and how you approached it. And I think churches, unfortunately, have adopted, adopted more of the world's ways. Well, we're going to take 30 years to pay off this building. And a lot of churches and organizations right now are in deep trouble because they have borrowed beyond their means. Now, I will say as a pastor that I have borrowed money with uh, the elders of Community Bible Church over the years. Uh, we've never owed money longer than five years. And we're talking about big projects. You know, I, by God's grace, we sit on property that's valued now at $35 million. And there's a lot of property here, but it is debt-free, 100%. And I shared with the elders maybe, I guess, <coughs> excuse me, uh, eight years ago, nine years ago, that as long as I was a pastor, I would never again be able to, in good conscience, borrow money. Uh, Why? Because I felt like the economy of the United States is in terrible shape and that unless this government did things to radically change uh, their, you know, principles of operating, that we were going to head for a spiritual disaster. And I didn't want us to be a part of that disaster. And unfortunately, a lot of churches, because they've exercised poor stewardship, are in real trouble. And this is why we need to be discerning. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, a manifestation of spiritual maturity is discernment. And discernment comes through knowing what God's Word says and then obeying what you know. It's the exercise of biblical truth. And so, for instance, in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, he says, "...for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness." For he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, in other words, um, they have obeyed what they know, they have um, their senses trained, and the word trained is an interesting word. It's a Greek word that we get our word gymnastics from. Uh, They've trained their senses to discern good and evil. And so that's really what we need. And so in church leadership, we're really heading any Christian organization. You need people who are discerning. Unfortunately, today, we just look sometimes for people with a lot of money because we think they may give to the organization, or we look for people who are savvy with money, and those are not necessarily disqualifications. It's very helpful to have someone who is knowledgeable about money, but if that knowledge of money is not linked to spiritual discernment, then you can potentially operate the church the way you'd operate a business, and the two are not the same. Uh, One passage that immediately comes to mind is in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Abram uh, was engaged in an interesting conflict, the War of the Kings, is the way the New American Standard even titles this chapter. And let me just read a portion of it uh, in verse uh, 22 of chapter 14. It says, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. What was he interested in? He was interested in the glory of God. He was interested in 
his ability to demonstrate that God provides, that God leads his people. Obviously, the church was not established. Uh, This is a new nation that God has formed uh, through this man, Abram, who becomes Abraham. Well, now we live on uh, the New Testament side of things. The new covenant has been made available through the death of Christ and the cross. A Messiah has come. He is the head of the church, Ephesians 5.23 says. And I think as the head of the church, he can lead his people in real time. He can give them discernment that's based on biblical principles. But again, all scripture is inspired and profitable. And when Paul writes that, uh, while a few New Testament books had been written, he is contextually referring to the Old Testament as much as anything. Uh, that the Old Testament is also profitable. All Scripture, it's included as God breathed, and it's profitable. So there's profit even in what we read here in Genesis 14. And by the way, Abram is the father of the faithful. He is a man of great faith. God uh, singles him out for his great faith, and he's called the friend of God. So there's a lot that can be learned from from Abraham. But I think in real time, God can lead his people Uh, Psalm 32 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Uh, God can direct us. A man plans his ways, but God can direct our steps. And so I think there's some critical questions that when churches make this decision, or again, it includes all nonprofits, and though uh, a church technically doesn't have to fill out a 501c3 status, they're considered a nonprofit. Um, But, you know, what are the biblical principles that are informing your decision to make this? Um, Sadly, you know, well, we think we might run into financial problems. We think the giving might diminish over the course of next months. And so they borrow the money and they see it as free money. Uh, To me, that is unpatriotic. Not only is it unpatriotic, I think it's a poor witness Um, So, again, is the church experiencing financial hardship because of poor management? If they are, then sometimes God wants us to suffer the consequences of the decisions that we have made. And and I think a more fundamental question to ask, too, is if you accept some subsidy from the government. Again, people see it as free money. They say, oh, this is good stewardship. I don't know how it's all going to pan out, but I fear— that there's going to be a high percentage of um, recipients who are local churches. I mean, here you had a couple weeks ago, you know, a major Christian organization, and as much as anything, they were encouraging thousands of pastors who were on that conference call to take advantage of the money. Now, there were some who said, well, I don't know, but we're not going to blame you if you do. But they couldn't come up with a clear, definitive answer. And so I fear, you know, there's so many shysters out there, uh, guys who are just in the ministry for the money. Uh, There's no care about the glory of God and no care about integrity. And I don't know what kind of numbers it will pan out in the end, but I fear that what's going to happen is a lot of small businesses are going to be robbed of that opportunity to borrow the money. I mean, they, they ran out of money in a matter of days, and now they're you know, debating over another $500 billion, another half a trillion dollars of debt to continue this program. And how many small churches robbed small businesses who have lost the opportunity to function 
how many of those have missed the opportunity. You know, and I'm not saying it's right for them to bar. I'm just telling you that the witness that we portray might be really, really bad. And but I think a cr- critical question is if we take these the, this money from the government. Um, have we really robbed people of the opportunity to give sacrificially and experience God's provisions? M- maybe you know uh, a church needs to encourage their members. Hey, we're we're in we're really struggling, and we want to continue you know supporting our missionaries. And maybe uh, some people in the church have assets that they can sell. You know, there was a time in in church history when the church was newly formed. It's recorded in Acts four and five. Uh, where you have a situation, what had happened was Pentecost came, and it, you know Pentecost came every year. We we think of it as a one-time event, but it was the capstone of the Feast of Weeks, a seven-week-long thing, and the capstone was Pentecost and this 50th day of celebration. And on this Pentecost, it was different from all other Pentecosts because what God had pictured in the Old Testament feast was now fulfilled. And so we're told now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who is also called Barnabas um, by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so he set an example. He sacrificed uh, a piece of property, and of course, Two people with less than pure motives, Ananias and Sapphira, wanting to toot their own horn, uh, did it in a dishonest way, and God God took their lives. But what you find in this Pentecost, because so many people didn't want to leave, this is the promise that we had been, you know, seeking for uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and now it has happened. They wanted to stay in Jerusalem. They wanted to listen to the apostles. They wanted to grow. And so you had all this influx of people who had come to stay, you know, for a few weeks. Now we're staying for months, and there was a real financial crunch in the church. And so what did God's people do? You had guys like Barnabas who stepped up to the plate and sold some assets and gave sacrificially. That's a beautiful thing. And I think sometimes when a church just takes the government money, they have robbed their people of an opportunity to give sacrificially. Not to mention this caller who writes here, uh, or who's emailed us here. Uh, he is, um, you know, he said our church isn't even experiencing financial trouble. Uh, so to me, I think what your church did was less than moral, and it lacked real integrity. I think it was very, very sad. And and so, you know, when you take this grant, what what's leading your decision? Is it fear? of the future, or are you operating in faith? And so I would say as a general principle, a church would be very foolish. Look, we always argue and have forever as evangelicals, we don't want government money, period. Why? Because it always comes with strings attached. Oh, you want our money? Then you're going to take our principles. You're going to hire homosexuals and lesbians and, and transgender people, and, you know, with it comes ties. Now, they say there's no ties to this, and maybe there won't be. But I I just think, you know, it would be better, I think, for some churches just to go under than to really, and just admit, look, we've been crummy stewards of what God entrusted to us. 
and rather than to further compromise their witness by taking government funds. So anyway, that's how I think about it. And um, I hope that's helpful. Uh, you know, again, there's nothing you can do right now. It's already been done in terms of this uh, person who writes. I don't think you need to be a divisive person in the congregation. You're either on the team where while you might not agree with this pastor's decision, he made it, um, assuming in conjunction with other leadership. Well, it's congregational rule, it sounds like, so the members voted. The members agreed to do it. So if you can't be there in good conscience, but this is this is why you need leadership in the church that's discerning and is leading people based on biblical principles, not on fear, not on opportunity. And I think that's what's happened with this particular um, occasion that you're describing. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes. Uh, good morning, um, Pastor Carl Brogy. Um, I love listening to you on the radio. And um, being that we're in this uh, um, this virus, uh I've been live streaming you on Sundays, and I just love to hear you preach the Word of God. God bless you and your family. Also love listening to your wife, Audrey, on Fridays when she comes in your place on Friday mornings into Friday nights. Thank you, and God bless you. Well, thank you for your encouragement. That means a lot to us. Do you have a church home? Yes, uh, I in um, Hilton Head, I attend Central Church. Well, great. I visited you... your church on occasion also, and I just love, love it. Well, everyone needs a good Bible-believing church where they can grow. And and uh, But thank you for your encouragement and for your prayers for this church, for this fellowship. And uh, God is certainly uh, using even negative circumstances uh, I think we live streamed was at 49 to 47 states last Sunday, and based on the report we got in 11 countries, we've had up to 25 countries over the last month, 25 different countries who have live streamed us. So God is using this shutdown to bring people through the Internet under the preaching of God's Word, and we pray that many would find Christ and believers would, would grow uh, what man, um, you know, well, I won't go there. Let me let me just keep going to the next question. Can I say it? Okay, go well, ahead. What man meant for evil, God used for good. Yes. And um, certainly um, uh, with, with that said, uh, you know, the, the function of a virus and how, how it's here, I kind of dealt with that on last uh, Sunday's sermon. We, we live in a fallen world, and just like the Spanish flu came in 1918 because we were in a fallen world, and the population back then was only 1.8 billion people on the planet. Uh, conservatively, 50 million people died. Some would say 100 million. Some occasionally you'll read even 200 million, but at least 50 million people died of that virus, and it was a terrible, terrible thing. People would say, well, this is just a repeat. I don't think so. I think this is very different at this time in human history. The simple reason that um, the, the, the scenario for the final chapter of human history is being unfolded. And it's a scenario, sadly, that many Christians are ignorant to. Some because in their unbelief, they say the church is the new Israel. And that's just wrong. That That is going against the clear teaching of Scripture God said after he gave the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, and we are recipients of the new covenant today as, as believers in Christ. 
he made a promise concerning the people of Israel that we would do well to think about. And I think it's interesting that he made the promise in the context of the new covenant. And these verses, by the way, are quoted in the book of Hebrews and other places in the New Testament to remind us that Gentiles today in the church age can be recipients where God would put his spirit within us and he'd write his law into our hearts. We'd be born again in the words of Jesus. Um, But these promises to the Jews are not dismissed because then he says immediately after that, thus says the Lord God who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, what fixed order? The sun, the moon, the stars. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast out all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. He repeats the same thing in Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 38. He reminds us that not only is God committed to Israel to the very end, but at the end of time, the latter times, and that is a, a chronological marker used in the Old Testament by Moses. It's used by a number of the prophets to describe that time frame that approaches the second coming of the Messiah, Christ's return uh, from heaven to earth, that he would gather the Jewish people from across the world. And that should be a warning to people that the stage is being set. And when you couple that with the moral climate that Jesus said would accompany his return from heaven for the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. But sadly, uh, reform theology, amillennialism, it just denies all this. They have to write away so many promises and prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled And yet all the prophecies for the first coming, Jesus literally fulfilled. And I promise you, God is going to fulfill the prophecies for the second coming the same way. So we are living in a different time frame. It is very, very different from even 100 years ago when the Spanish flu came. And it should serve, among other things, as a heightened warning to believers to be ready and to be faithful um, with the gospel to share it. Go ahead, Rick. Okay, uh, do you have a question, caller? Yes. I, um, my question is, um, if Jesus is God, the, the Son, why does John eleven twenty seven says he is the Son of God? Okay, so that's a great question. And so uh, the term Son of God is not a depreciating term. Like, oh, he's not God. He's just, you know, a son of God. Like, we're all sons and daughters of God. And by the way, that's what Mormonism does, among other things. They grossly distort the Scripture. They're anything but Christians. They're closer to Hindus than they are um, Christians. I mean, they have everyone can become a god, and there's uh, hundreds of millions of people who've been gods, and there's gods on other planets and all kinds of wacko stuff that is so far from the truth of God's Word. But the term Son of God is not a depreciating term in Scripture. It's a term of equality. And so there are a number of terms that are used to describe the Messiah. He's the Son of David. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. And so the Son of God puts emphasis, indeed, on his deity. 
the son of man on his humanity, the son of David on his kingship, that he would come through the promised line of David and sit on David's throne. Um, When he is confronted in the final week by a fellow by the name of Caiaphas, Caiaphas was the high priest and uh, Jesus stood before him on on the night he was betrayed. There were actually six different trials that Christ faced. In one of the trials was before Annas, and Annas sent him to the high priest uh, Caiaphas. And so let me just read from Matthew 27. Now the chief priests and the whole council, the council here is a reference to the Sanhedrin. It was 70 men uh, who basically formed the supreme court of the Jewish people. They, um, he stood before the chief priests and the whole council trying to obtain false testimony about Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. That's not what he said, but there were liars. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. By the way, that's a fulfillment of prophecy. He never defended his innocence. He was silent like a sheep before its shearers. Again, every prophecy for the first coming of Messiah was literally fulfilled. So every prophecy for the second coming. And so to my Reformed friends, when it says Messiah will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it in two, when it describes a river, that will flow from Jerusalem all the way down to the Dead Sea. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea today. Men are going to fish from the Dead Sea. You know, they have to manipulate, spiritualize, trivialize Scripture. I'm not saying they're evil people, but they have taken a hermeneutic that is based, a principle for approaching the Scriptures that is based more on Roman Catholicism than the principle of how to interpret the Scripture that's found within the Scripture itself. Listen, when the plain truth makes good truth, good sense, when the plain sense makes good sense, you should seek no other sense. Otherwise, you come up with nonsense. And unless the, you know, there's a metaphorical statement that when you take literally makes nonsense, it's probably probably metaphorical. When God says, "I'll, I'll carry you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. I don't think he was literally saying that he's going to take, you know, all these millions of eagles and and take, you know, two million people out of Egypt. He's, he's talking about the strength by which he will deliver Israel. But again, when something can be taken in its context, unless it says it's like this or as this, you should interpret it literally. So when we speak of a literal interpretation of the Bible, we're not dismissing metaphors and everything else. And so Jesus kept silent. That's what Isaiah said he would do when it would come to defend his innocent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man. There's another term. He's quoting Daniel now, sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he is blasphemed. Now, if you were to look at the parallel passage um, and you read Luke's gospel, he just plainly, plainly says, I use the Son of God, and he says, I am. Yes, I am. That's precisely who I am. And again, the response is the same as it is here. The high priest, 
tears his robes. Why? Because he says he is blasphemed. Because why? He claimed to be God. And so the term son of God, uh, context is everything. It is true. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Um, but the term son of God, when it's used contextually, it's not a depreciating term. It is a term of equality. When Jesus said, those are sons of thunder, he was saying they were thunderous men in terms of their personality. And so when the text says he is the son of God, it's saying he is God, the son. It's an, it's a, a term that you could ask any Jew, um, in terms of these phrases, whether they're found in the New Testament or whether they're found in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that these are terms of equality. But lay that aside, there are Jehovah's Witness and Mormons and others who try to create uh, these terms in a depreciating way that they are denying the equality of God the Son to God the Father. But we have so many other passages, again, that affirm the total equality of the Father to the Son. And then just direct statements. Um, For instance, um, we are to be looking for in Titus 2, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own for who are for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So he's speaking here of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a definitive, uh, straightforward statement. And again, John is not going to contradict himself. So you let John interpret John. And if there's one thing that John highlights in his gospel, it's the deity of Christ. In fact, he tells us many other miracles Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. Um, So you have to let John interpret John. Jesus uh, asks in John's gospel, why are you stoning me? For the good works I do? No, but because you who are just a man make yourself out to be God. So let's give John credit that he's not so convoluted that when he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so he makes a plain statement. The word was with God and the word was God. And then he tells us in verse 14 of chapter one, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. The word who is God became flesh. And that's exactly what the prophets had foretold. A child will be born. Wonderful. What's the child's name? The child's name will be called Mighty God. And so in the mind of not a modern-day Jew, but a traditional Jew, certainly it's obvious from the text that you read on Caiaphas, when uh, someone claimed to be the son of God, they were claiming equality with the Father, and they were claiming uh, that they were indeed God in human flesh, that they were indeed the promised Messiah because God was going to become a man. That's what was prophesied. So you've got to let John interpret John. Always look within the broad context of a book and then look within the broad context of scriptures. So there's dozens and dozens of passages, which if someone's interested in studying this, I have a course at searchthescriptures.org. It's called Christology, and we walk through evidences for 
the deity of Christ. You can also go to the Back to Basics um, uh, at searchthescriptures.org. It's our discovery class, and one of the uh, handouts is on the doctrine of the Trinity, and I go through the uh, proofs from Scripture for the Father, Son, and Spirit equally being persons and equally being God, coexisting as three co-eternal persons at the same time. Anyway, these are great questions, and uh, let's go to the next caller. They've been waiting. All right. We do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. It's David and Kim Abbott calling from Columbia, South Carolina. Oh, hi, Kim. Nice to hear your voice. Hope you and David are doing well up there. We're doing great. Thank you. And we certainly still are enjoying your ministry and um, Community Bible Church and um, just about every day. We're listening to something that you've taught us and listen to it multiple times because it's so full of information. I guess we're wondering, this is a simple question, we're wondering what is your next book that you'll be preaching on from the pulpit? (laughs) Well, I never reveal that, but i tell you what I'm going to do. And I'll tell you this much. Uh, I I have a book plan that I've been working on for the last almost six months now. And I'm going to lay that aside in the short run because I don't want to really begin preaching it until everyone is back. And I'm not sure when that will happen. We've been working together as a staff team for reopening the campus and how that will unfold. Uh, What will the first Sunday be like in terms of parking, in terms of seating, how we're going to space people, uh, ushers, greeters. There's so many facets. I I don't see that happening before June. Uh, I'm not sure the the governor of South Carolina will give us permission anyway before June. But I don't see doing it before June, even if he did. Um, I'm going to err on the side of caution. But in light of all the trauma and trials, I'm going to preach a series from an Old Testament prophet. And if you come or listen this Sunday, you'll know what the series is. I never like to show my hand beforehand, but you'll be able to study him. And uh, he's an Old Testament prophet who lived in very difficult times. And so I feel very burdened to go ahead and preach, I'll tell you, Elijah the prophet. I preached on him actually 22 years ago. The messages are no longer available at Search the Scriptures. But uh, I'm going to preach on him again and because uh, I'll preach maybe six or seven weeks on this prophet. And because he lived in very difficult times and how he walked by faith and some of the struggles Uh, and trials that he went through mimic difficult days that we're living in, I think will be a great help and encouragement. And then when I'm done with that, hopefully maybe we'll be back uh, together and I'm going to start another book of the Bible, Um, but we're not there yet. But thank you, Kim, for calling and asking and appreciate you guys and um, stay safe and let God use you in Columbia. Many people are open right now to the gospel like never before. All right, very good. Uh, 843-525-1859 if you have a question this morning. And I'm going to uh, remind, well, do you want to go ahead and tell folks about the uh, the revised Search the Scriptures website? I think we've got it all totally working now, Pastor. Well, good. Yeah, we uh, just um, put a new fresh face on Search the Scriptures. It came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, maybe it was released a little early. I don't know, but there's, that's part of the whole process. I guess is you find out all the problems with it. And fortunately, uh, Rick with the company that he works with have ironed those out 
And so that will be a great um, resource to you. There is uh, entire books of the Bible, Genesis or Acts or Romans or Philippians, and just dozens of books that I've preached in the last 30 years. Some of them are of a tape quality that we didn't put them all up there. Um, so even the series I did on Elijah, I was not really pleased with uh, the sound quality that now with the digital um, aspects that are available to us still sound good 100 years from now. Um, but I think, I hope we'll all be uh, in heaven by that time. I know I will be, whether by death or by rapture. I won't be here in 100 years, but I'm not sure about you, Rick. But Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, well. I've got a prophet on line one, and maybe he'll give me the answer. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. All right. One of our favorite callers, Anthony, is here on the line. Thanks for holding. You're on the air. Good morning, Pastor. How you doing? Hey, doing well, Anthony. Good to hear your voice. What's Uh, going on, brother? That was uh, a good sermon on Sunday morning, and uh, and it's a little different standing up, uh, singing singing song service and clapping your hand by yourself, just you and your wife, but it was still good. Amen, brother. I, I, I can't would, wait till we return to church. I really miss coming to church. You really miss your church family. I know. No I know we do, don't we? Can we all do. Yes. Go ahead. Hello. Can you still hear me? Yeah, loud and clear, Anthony. Go ahead. Okay. When we ask God for wisdom, and he says that he will give it to us liberally, but then the scriptures also say that, says a lot about discernment. Does both of these come together at the same time, especially if God knows what we need even before we ask? Discernment and wisdom. Is that the same thing? Does it come at the same time when we ask? And I'm going to hang up and listen to you. It's a great question. Uh, It's interesting, the um, promise of asking God for wisdom, the context that it's given in, uh, consider. If the trial that God is bringing upon our life that comes for whatever reason We're all experiencing the COVID-19 trial because, you know, we live in a fallen world. Uh, Certainly God's protective hand may be lifted off, um, but wherever you come down on that in light of last Sunday's sermon, have we angered God? Have we made God angry? And one lady in Graniteville who drove by our campus there was enraged, I think, that we would even put such a thing on the sign. And, uh, but People have distorted views of God. They've created God in their own image. And yes, God gets angry. And if you don't understand that, you'll never understand grace. If you don't understand that sin is worthy of punishment, we call that wrath. That's the just anger of God. You'll never see a need for a Savior. So you cannot preach the love and mercy of God without preaching God's wrath. But we're in a trial of sorts even now when you encounter such trials, he says, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect. The word there is teleos. It means not perfect in that you never sin again, but it's a word that means mature. In fact, some English translations render it that way, that you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Then he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, 
uh, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So it's in the context of a trial, however that may come to us, that we are to ask God for wisdom. And God wants to give that wisdom. And we need to ask, um, you know, is this from your hand as an act of discipline? Is this from your hand because we live in a fallen world? God, what do you want to accomplish? Because nothing happens to the believer by accident. The believer can claim Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called by the Lord. Actually, Romans 8.28 is an interesting a uh, way, um, a verse that is maybe more literally, it's a little more wooden, but it's a little more precise in the American Standard Version of 1901 and the Old King James. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are, it looks like a verb in the new, new NAS since the 70s, um, to those who are called according to his purpose, but it a- is actually a noun to those who are the called. He's speaking to a specific group of people. That's how the American Standard Version 1901 and the Old King James rendered it. Again, it's a little wooden, but I think it captures the meaning. This is not some wholesale promise. Well, you know, everything has a purpose. It will all work out for good. And unbelievers sometimes quote that, and they're actually taking a verse that is out of context. This is a promise that is given to God's people because while trial Trials come to this world, you know, as the sparks fly upward, uh, so trials come. Anyone who's born of a woman, Job will say, will experience trials. So everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, is going to experience trials. But God can use the trials in a believer's life to mature us. So, yes, there's discernment that comes. So the first caller or the first person who emailed us here, um, you know, had a question about their local church, you know, borrowing this government money. Um, I'm assuming they're in a trial, though it certainly didn't sound like it. It sounded like giving hadn't gone off at all. And, and maybe, you know, it was just a fear. Well, you know, giving could go down in a month. And so maybe we need to get this money. And now we're putting you know, our confidence in the government to supply our need instead of the living God. And I think that was very unwise. And not to mention, I think it just lacked integrity on the part of that local assembly if that writer is describing the situation accurately. And I'm assuming he is, and I can only go by what he he tells me, and that's how I base my answer on, based on the information that you've given me. Of course, the Bible says a man's case seems just until another comes and examines it. The first person who presents his case, oh, wow, I didn't know your husband was such a monster. And then you talk to the husband and say, I didn't know your wife was a wife beater. My, you know, so, you know, a man's case seems just until another comes and, you know, he presents his case. But with that said, yeah, the two dovetailed together. Um, If you're double minded, what does that mean? It means you're not obedient to God's will and God's plan for your life. You're not practicing the truth such that you will have trained your yourself to discern good and evil. So, yeah, the, the two work uh, hand in glove. They go together. You can't separate them. And 
Um, so anyway, that's a great question. Let's go on to the next one. Rick. All right. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and Paul writes, a situation comes up from time to time at our local church and I'd appreciate your view. Christians who are in the country illegally come to church and enjoy the preaching and fellowship as do we. In general, they're wonderful Christians who love the Lord. The issue is about membership. One can't be involved in ministry without being a member. On the one hand, they are in America illegally and breaking the law. On the other hand, they came here as children and have built lives here. I called the local congressman's office, and there's no pathway to legality or citizenship. Immigration doesn't care that people are in the country illegally as long as they aren't causing trouble. You see the dilemma, Christian brothers and sisters, but in the country illegally. Thank you. I'm certainly no expert in the law, but from what I've read and from what I understand at this point, right now it is still open for debate whether children who were born here, the children of illegal aliens, what their status is. Uh, you know, traditionally, if you're born in America, you're an American citizen. But you also have people who were brought here as little children. They were not born on American soil. And because of that, their status is in flux. Well, the government has not made a definitive decision on these people at this point. And so right now they're not breaking the law. The government has not said, we don't care if you were brought here when you're 10 years old. You're an illegal alien and you're to leave our borders. They haven't said that. So in light of the fact that they've not made that definitive statement, I think that such people could be a member of your local church. I think the more sticky issue is the guy who's crossed over the border illegally. He's found a job in your community. I'm assuming your church is um, English-speaking. Maybe you have bilingual services, but he speaks English and wants to serve in your fellowship. He knows he's illegal. He has crossed over the border illegally. He's breaking the law of the United States. And should he be a member of your church? And I would simply say no, because he is to submit to the governing authorities, and he is living in willful disobedience to what God has said. Look, um, my head is off to millions and millions of people who want to come to this country. And why wouldn't they want to come here? This is like one of the most God-blessed countries in the history of the world. And the reason I believe we've been God-blessed is because we honored the Lord. Uh, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, Solomon will write. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord's. And that's a promise that God extends not just to Israel, but to any nation of the world, that they can be blessed. And yes, America has never been perfect, and we've had our flaws because, you know, it's just like there's no perfect churches. Every church, you're looking for a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. We're all sinners, and there's no perfect nation in the world. And America had its flaws from its start, but still it was a God-blessed nation, and no one can deny it. That's why people want to come here. But Acts is very clear that that God established borders. And if you don't have borders, you don't have a nation, and there are people who basically are globalists who want to erase all kinds of borders in the world. And, and yet God says here, Paul is preaching on a sermon on Mars Hill. And it says, and he, God made from one man, from one blood, 
He's speaking about Adam. And by the way, to deny the historicity of Adam as the first man is to deny the plain truth of Scripture. And so for Pat Robinson to argue for evolution, he's wrong. Um, You know, uh, for Tim Keller in his so-called books on apologetics, he's not a Christian apologist. He is undermining the Christian faith by denying the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11 and saying that theistic evolution is a viable option. He not only did that in his first so-called apologetics books that he released maybe 15 years ago, he continues to do it in articles. And I'm suspect uh, of him. Yeah, I ought to be suspect. And I'm not surprised by his support of the Revoice movement, where people can say you can be uh, gay and be a Christian, that as long as you don't act out physically your gayness, you can embrace your gay feelings. That's the Revoice movement. That's making these feelings morally neutral. Just like uh, we wouldn't say that of someone who's eaten up by heterosexual lust. We'd say, no, you need to bring those feelings under control. Well, God, it says here, who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. Um, He is determined. God has set the boundaries, so to speak. Borders are biblical. And that's why, for instance, even when God established the nation of Israel, there were borders to it. And that's by sovereign design. And you can read, you know, Proverbs 22. Um, Some of you have just, you know, been reading that. And in Proverbs 22 and in verse 8, uh, you know, there's 30 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and there's one for every day of the month. And he who sows iniquity, well, uh, it's, uh, excuse me, 21. Yeah, there it is. Um, in, in in Proverbs 23.10, God, again, he defines a border. He's very specific. Uh, if there's no, do not move the ancient boundary. Why? Because there's borders. There's borders for your property. If your next door neighbor starts coming in over your land and he's building, you know, a swimming pool on a lot that you own, he has violated your space. And nations have borders as well, and they're defined by God. And so when those are ignored, you no longer have a nation. And so if you have someone like that in your congregation that is in outright disobedience to the law, um, he shouldn't be a member of your church. Anyway, we're out of time. A lot of questions we didn't get to, but God willing, there'll be next Tuesday and another opportunity. Thanks for joining us today for the Bible Line.